This is a Triple J podcast. And we're back. Hello. Welcome to Science with Dr. Carl for 2024. If you are just joining us, hello. My name is Lucy Smith. I wrangle science questions from Triple J listeners around the nation and put them to the smartest man I know and national living treasure, Dr. Carl. This week in particular, we got into questions about antibiotic resistance. We chatted about the struggle of putting on wet swimmers and whether sex affects your sporting performance. Let's get into it. We're going to start in the Illawarra, the kids from the gong. Kaya, you and your son Angus have a question. What's going on? Yes, hi, Dr. Carl. Um, So we have a pool and we live really close to the beach and we're constantly swimming. And we've noticed that when either the kids' wetties or rush shirts are wet or their body's wet, it's really difficult for them to put it back on. So Mm. they go for the second swim. It's hard to get it back on. And my son said to me, who's six, he said, when things are wet, it usually makes things slippery. Um, And we thought it, you know, liquid is is a lubricant. However, when it's with wet swimwear, it becomes, it seems to create friction. Um, And we've trialed some different strategies to get it on, whether they, you know, punch their way into their arms or we fold it all the way back. And we just haven't found a way to easily put on wet swimwear. So if you could um, explain that phenomenon, Dr. Carl, that would oh be lovely. Oh, my God. You, you, you've actually trialled different things. You've tried different things. Oh, my God, you are yeah. up there with a contender for the prize. In fact, you are probably the best contestant so far yeah. as of 2024, the entire year. Would you oh. believe? Oh, Amazing. yeah, you're the very oh, best one no so way. far. <laughs> and um, I, I, I think I'm starting off with a straight I don't know and then I'll offer a few workarounds. One, or not workarounds but alternative things, the phenomenon called stick slip and so if you've just got something on a bench top and you want it to move sure you just push it and it moves but if you go very gently you'll see that you just go push 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 and then suddenly it goes Mm. so it sticks and then it slips and there's a whole article about that in wikipedia i'm sure i I hope there's an article if there's not you could start one up so i'm guessing that that's part of it and the other way around it i found is you put a plastic bag over your extremity foot or hand and then use that and then then your wetsuit or your cosies can slip easily over that mm. so it seems as something to do with the cosies and your skin as opposed to your cosies and a plasticky bag that you use for low friction apart from that i'm running out of ideas in fact i ran out of ideas really quickly mm. i wonder if it's something to do with the fact that when you are submerged in water you want the swimmers to stick to you so then when they are already wet Potentially, it's just doing what it thinks it's it's needs to do. Well, I wonder if it would be easier to put wet swimmers on if you were already wet. Oh, so that's another part of the experiment. Mm. So go into the water, um, maybe put yourself the, up to your neck. Maybe in the shower, maybe have a quick shower, yeah. get the Rudy Nudie, mm-hmm. and then put yeah. the wet swimmers on. Oh, but also in the water in the yeah. ocean, um, yeah. making sure you don't break local beauty laws and all that sort of stuff and, and, and <laughs> of offend course. people. Yeah, okay. And then um, try taking your clothes off and putting them on again in the water while yeah. wet, yeah. I was thinking if we're doing it in the shower, could we also change the variable in warm water or cold water to mm. see, you know, stretching the fabric, oh. um, whether it constricts. That that could be another uh, thing we could trial. It's not the question, not the answer that gets you the Nobel Prize. It's a question, and you are a prime contender for a Nobel Prize in this fairly <laughs> obscure field, but nevertheless uh, important to Australia as we head into another summer. 
Very much wow. so. All right. Thank Loving you. these variables, Kyle. Yeah. Kaya? I, yes. I, 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 Thank you. Is it real or do you think that Kaya has just made all this up to get, win the fabulous um, Triple J Fun Pack? Cause maybe. Because she's been showing some severe signs now there. We're impressed. Very I will impressed. say one of the annoying things, it happens, of course, with Rash Fest as well, but when, Kaya, you're putting on... Uh, one-piece swimsuit and of course it's got the lining in the middle and then you're putting on a wet one-piece swimsuit and then the lining sticks to you before the rest of the swimsuit Ah. does so you're trying to pull it up but then the lining's getting it's it's turning yourself inside out it's a whole thing that's a messy thing we've got phil on the central coast here now phil what's your question yeah g'day so we've got horses and we've also got uh the wild flying foxes that come and do their business in the trees and drop their droppings on the ground, and the horses eat the eat the, the eat the grass under the trees and get hindra. So I'm wondering if I use uh, activated carbon and sprinkle it on the ground under the trees, would that soak up the toxin? Is ah. hindra virus not a toxin? Okay, uh, you've raised a big question there. So um, Hendra virus uh, was discovered around the mid-1990s, named after the suburb of Hendra in Brisbane. Is that right? I think so, yeah. yeah. It was a big, big thing happened up there. Um, and there were bad yeah. things happening to the horses, and it turned out that the flying fox was the carrier of it, and then it could go and jump across to humans. And yep. in some so, – so because it's a virus – what it does, what it is, is a bunch of genetic material. I don't know whether it's DNA or RNA. It then gets taken up by the cell and then takes over part of the DNA temporarily of that cell, a human cell, we'll say, or a horse cell or a flying fox cell, and then makes copies of itself. Now, it seems to enter the cells via a receptor, which I can't remember the name of, Ephrin or something like that. Um, but I haven't been able to, from memory, be able to find out um, what happens after that. It causes a pneumonia and other things like that, but it, it doesn't seem to make a toxin as such, right? Okay. So it doesn't seem to make a toxin, but rather it, it, when it is inside your cells, it interferes with the normal function, but I haven't been able to find out from the past. I, I haven't read the latest on it. So, um, but if it is of... In fact, I, when I think about it, I don't think viruses really make toxins. It's, it tends to be bacteria that make toxins. Um, and so the classic case was about three centuries ago in Germany when 13 people sat down to have sausage, the Latin name for which is botulus, and seven of them died because they got botulinum poisoning, which is the toxin made by the uh, botulinum bacterium, which is now used in Botox. Wow. Yeah. And so what it does is it paralyzes your nerves for, say, three months or so, and then they come good again. And so that way you don't wrinkle on your face and you, you know, don't, yeah. yeah. So they just had too much of it in one sitting? They, not not too much of it, they had some. Yeah. It is um, the world's, one of the world's most potent toxins in terms of um, uh, LD50. LD50 stands for lethal dose, and 50 means kills half the population. So if you've got 100 oh. people and you give them a certain dose and half of them die, you have now found the lethal dose, the LD50, and it's got one of the l- lowest LD50s of any toxin that we know of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm, I'm not th- so I'm kind of guessing that there isn't a toxin for Hendra. So this is the second question in a row for which I'm coming out with a big fat I don't know, but I need to read more. But that's all right because it gives you a little bit of homework. Oh, homework is my dream. Mm-hmm.
Phil, on the Central Coast, <laughs> sit tight. We'll see how we go. We'll see how we go if we get better than nothing. We've got Lizzie in Melbourne here. Dr Lizzie, what's your question? Hi. Hi. I've been prescribed 100 days of antibiotics by my doctor Shit. to hopefully put an end to persistent acne. Oh. Um, she said that after the course, if the acne comes back, we can't do any more antibiotics because of antibiotic resistance. So I was wondering what antibiotic resistance is and is this something that would make me more sick in the future? Ah, antibiotic resistance is where the bacteria uh, evolve resistance to the drugs that we use to kill them. Uh, what, the, what do the drugs do? So a bacterium is a free-floating living creature. It's just a single cell by itself. And in the case of penicillin, it interferes with an important part of its function. So the bacterium, or that singular or bacteria plural, they have a cell wall. And it turns out that penicillin looks very similar to that cell wall, but not, but it's not exact. And when it's trying to make the cell wall, when it divides, because the bacteria split in two every 20 or so minutes and they make two babies. And they look around in the environment for any chemicals to make a cell wall. And if there's penicillin around, they'll grab the penicillin and it kind of works, but not quite. And it falls apart and that bacterium dies. So that's how penicillin kills bacteria and there are so many drugs now that work on very many different parts of the life cycle of the bacterium. But the trouble is that the little guys divide every 20 minutes. And if one of them makes the cell wall using a slightly different chemical, if there's very low levels of penicillin in the background, it'll still be able to make the cell wall out of other chemicals um, and it's living in the presence of penicillin so it's becoming what you call penicillin resistant Mm. and so they evolve you only need one to be resistant and then that'll have two babies after 20 minutes and then four and eight and suddenly the whole spreads through the whole population so um, in the early days of the antibiotics they just were a lifesaver all over the place. Mm. And some of my medical friends do this thing where they grab every single antibiotic they can and then go off to the South Pacific and they spend their holidays uh, just doing stuff medical for free in in, in in the Australian outback. Or, and, and they find in those cases, when those people have not been exposed to antibiotics, the bacteria um, just get knocked over terrifically. So in Western society, where we've got lots of antibiotics, there's a lot of antibiotic resistance around. Mm. Um, so is that kind of answering your question, that the bacteria evolve to get resistance because they want to live? Yeah, I guess I'm asking if I stayed on it, you know, if I got off it after 100 days and then got back on, does that mean that it wouldn't work anymore or does that mean that, like, I would get more sick from other bacteria in future mm. or something like that? Okay, so the first major rule to remember, never forget this for the rest of your life, all drugs are poisons, what matters is the dose. We worked out that 500 years ago. So in a case of water, like a dose of water, four times your normal amount you drink through a day can kill you, right? So all drugs are poisons. You've got to have the right dose. So with the antibiotics, they're good maybe for the bacteria on your skin, but they can do bad things to the bacteria that live in your gut. Mm. And you need those bacteria. There are more bacteria cells in your gut than there are cells elsewhere in in the whole of your body, about 40 Mm. trillion versus 37 trillion. And you need them. If you did not have those bacteria, you would be 
two-thirds your weight, you'd eat twice as much and you'd be really weak and sickly and your brain wouldn't have developed properly because you need those bacteria to make free fatty acids. So you were playing a game where on one hand uh, there's harm from the antibiotics and there's good and you want the harm benefit ratio to be the right way for you Mm. and so if you keep on taking them for a long time you can have bad side effects elsewhere as well as uh, help encourage the bacteria to evolve resistance to your particular antibiotic. So really best case scenario is that Lizzie takes these antibiotics for 100 days, the skin situation clears up and hopefully that's it? Yeah, that, that's part of it. Now, I'm talking out of my knowledge range here, but I just love sorbolene and glycerine for the skin. Do you wash with that for your skin? Oh, you yeah. I u- no, I use good good moisturisers and stuff, yeah, definitely. Dr. Carl, I will say this, Hang you are on. out of your depth here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, me, uh, Don't ask us this. <laughs> okay, so I know you... I'm just sort of worried because um, the moisturisers often have all sorts of other chemicals you don't want. I'm just talking about plain sorbolene and glycerine, which is just really cheap from the chemist. Do you use a really plain sorbolene and glycerine? Yeah, I use use a QV moisturiser that's supposed to be for the face. Mm. Okay, that that will take care of. I'm so happy for it. I I hope it works because it is difficult. Skin is is such a – there's so many variables with skin as well. So we're with you, Lizzie. Yeah. But thanks for your question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. We've got Jack in Nui here. Now, Jack, you've got a question about dehydration. Yeah, g'day, doctors. Uh, My question is how come when you get dehydrated from being in the sun or hungover or whatever, you get a headache rather than just becoming really thirsty and drinking and sorting the problem out? Um, we think it's due to the meninges about around your brain. This is the latest I read, I could be wrong, um, swelling or shrinking. So you've got a hard skull made of bone and then you've got a really soft, squishy brain that's got hardly any structural integrity. It's like really soft butter on a warm day. It'll just barely maintain its shape. So how do you protect that thing as you walk around during the day for the, 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 the brain being deformed? So you've got three sets of membranes. You've got one membrane that's like really thin cling wrap and that sticks really tightly to your brain. And then you've got another one which is kind of like a thicker plastic, and then you've got one that's like really thick plastic, and the three membranes collectively are called meninges. Each one of them is one of the three different types of meninges, and they're the three layers that work between your soft, squishy brain and your hard skull so you can run around and not damage your brain, and they can hydrate and dehydrate. Uh, my latest reading, which could be wrong, is that uh, they dehydrate uh, and, and then they shrink a bit and then you've got a little bit of extra movement around. And by the way, there are no pain sensors in the brain, but there are in the meninges. So that's the latest. But if somebody's a neuroscientist and they've read more on this, please ring in and let me know where I was wrong. Mm, 0439 text us. Why do we get a headache when we become dehydrated rather than just being thirsty? Thanks, Jack. Thank you, no Dr. Worries. We got Kate yes. on the Sunshine Coast. Now, Kate, before we get to your question, I kind of want to set the scene here. We are at a nightclub. Right. We're dancing. We're having yep. fun with our friends. Yep. It's the best time. We're yeah. in a circle. And then suddenly you smell it. Kate, answer, what's your question? Okay, so my question is why is it that when you go into a bathroom or you're with people and they're farted or they've pooed, you can't stand their smell? It's absolutely horrendous but you can stand your own smell. Kate, yeah, exactly right. Ah. How come we're at, you're at the club or you're in a mosh pit and someone's let one rip? It is just like disgusting. 
but I can it handle is. it when I pop Dry off. Dry reaching. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think it's the magic word habituation, which is a fancy psychological word meaning getting used to things. Classic example, put your socks in on first thing in the morning, you feel them for 10 seconds, then you forget about them for the rest of the day. So no. you have become habituated over a long period of life to think that your farts are just perfect um, and they're part of the bacteria. And by the way, the fart gas is made by bacteria. So the fart gas is around 60% nitrogen, is about 80%. So it's about 60% nitrogen, 20% hydrogen, which means that theoretically you could light it, do not do this experiment at home, um, and then the rest carbon dioxide and varying amounts of methane. And the smelly ones are caused by the sulphur family of chemicals. Um, you get them in brassicas and various vegetables, but overwhelmingly the sulphur-based chemicals are the ones that smell bad. And why you don't mind your own is because I think you just got used to it. Is mm. there more to it than that? You I like think, your I own think, farts? I think that's it. you got to like yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I just suddenly realised that when you pump blood out of your heart, the very first blood that's tapped off goes to the heart muscle. And I saw that as a metaphor that in the same way as the very first thing that the heart, the good blood does is feed the heart in the same way you should feed yourself and so you should like yourself. You should like yourself. You should like your little fluffs. Is that a very convoluted metaphor from going from the heart to liking yourself? (laughs) And and then in turn liking your own fluffs? Potentially. And and that follows on as part of the pathway. But then would it not be... It's a really weak explanation. I feel bad about it. No, but but is it habitual then if... Kate, can you handle... Do you have a partner? Can you handle their fluff? No. No, and that's the thing. It's just like you, you... you go into a bathroom after your kids and they're just absolutely horrendous and you think, well, I'm, I should, I'm used to that as yeah, well. Yeah, I should be used to this, but you still find it y- yucky. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Look, I don't have – look, what we need is a psychologist. Yeah. That's what we need. <laughs> but ultimately but, I think you are right in that regardless of how much contact hours you have with someone else, you yeah. can still handle – you live with yourself 24-7. You can handle your own fluffs. Yeah, and, and a psychologist will be able to take us through the pathway. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Please bring in psychologist. <laughs> Please. I love this. We are, what, three, four questions in. We've already gotten our first fart question for 2024, oh. Carl. We love it. We've got Adam here in Brisbane. Now, Adam, you want to ask about a particular phenomenon? What's what's going on? Hey, how are you going? I was just wondering if you could explain the Min Min lights in the outback Queensland and Western Australia. What are the Min Min lights, Carl? Um, They're in an area around Winton, sort of, if you go to Queensland, which by itself is bigger than all of Western Europe, and you go to the bottom left-hand corner, middle, sort of halfway between the border and the coast, uh, around there, Winton, you've got lots of dinosaur stuff, and that's when the Min Min lights were first noticed, but only after the Western travellers arrived... And the minimum lights are a light that you see on the horizon and it's there. And then as you go closer towards it, it stays the same distance away from you. And as you go back, retreat from it, it stays the same distance away from you and you can never get to it. And the it's really bothered a lot of people for a long time. There's been theories such as marsh gas, you know, from the, uh, was it, uh, men in black type thing, you know, marsh mm. gas that are igniting causing. The answer was finally given to us by a scientist called Jack Pettigrew, an Australian scientist who has been called one of the smartest scientists never to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, and he came up with, in neurology, the wonderful... Uh, description that 
if it fires, it wires. If you think a thought over and over, it will then permanently wire itself into your system. So that's how you learn stuff. And the example would be people walking across a grass lawn and gradually they leave a path in a lawn. So you leave a path in your brain. And he was curious about these min-min lights and he thought it might be due to the fact that it's in what's called the channel country. And he was right. So you think about Queensland, you've got this thing, the Great Dividing Range, um, and the water flows on, if it lands on one side, it goes to the ocean. If it lands on the other side, it will get to the middle of Australia quickly in about 10 months, every now and then, to Lake Eyre, and slowly underground to Dalhousie Springs after about 2 million years. But going overground, it can cause channels in the country. So that's why that part of the of Australia is called the channel country because it's up, down, up, down. The channels are rifts in the surface of the land caused by the fast-flowing water. And he reckoned that in this channel country, which is kind of unique in Australia, the cold air gets trapped and then slightly warmer air above it and then it can expand and contract and you can get, and he went through and did the equations, you can get bending of light. Wow. So he then did the experiment that he drove a long way away from his friends and then turned around with his vehicle and pointed the headlights at them and he was over the horizon. He was well and truly over the horizon and he talked to them via radio and as he switched the lights on and off, he could see, they, they said, oh, we can see it, we can't see it. And then they tried driving towards him and no matter how they drove, it was always the same distance away. So it was the light being trapped in a channel close to the ground. And then since then, there's been a few cases where they've looked at a road that's maybe 100 kilometres away, and they know that certain times of night, big mining trucks travel on it. And when the mining trucks travel on, their, their headlights are pointing in this direction, and they can see them 100 kilometres away in that region where you get the min-min lights. Wow. So it's air being trapped in a thin layer and this is typical of what they call the channel country. So what do the min-min lights look like? Uh, I've never seen one. Uh, have, have you seen one, Dr? No, definitely not, no. Mm. Uh, my understanding was that they just look like a headlight at a great distance, but the trouble was no matter how you travel, they never. They always stayed the same distance away and that's because instead of being 10 kilometres away, they were 50 or 100 kilometres away. Right. So you're travelling two or three kilometres made no difference. But presumably if they stayed on and you travel the whole 100 kilometres, you go, okay, right, it's a stupid truck with its headlights on. But <sighs> normally you're a great distance away from them and, and so it gets transmitted over these long ranges. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, in a way, it's kind of analogous to the um, humpback whales which dive down to the ocean floor and they fire find a layer of water that is at a certain temperature and that traps the sound and then they emit their song because oh, the humpback and then it can travel across the Pacific. It takes about 12 hours to get there and it'll travel to the other side of the Pacific and so they're the messengers, the songwriters, the troubadours of the whale kingdom and they're using a similar phenomenon, uh, a layer of, in this case, water at a certain temperature that traps the sound energy in that layer, or with the minimum lights, it traps the light energy in that layer. And it bends that up and down. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very clear because it's not. We are very lucky because we've got very clean air in Australia, mm. and also it traps it. So it's trapped in this channel. Like uh, you can see this if you go looking on Wikipedia. Look at how a beam of light travels in an optic fiber, and it oscillates up and down as it travels along. It never breaks out. That's crazy. Mm. I love that. 0439757555. We are answering your science questions. We've got texts about the farts. Someone right. saying, if I smell one from someone I know and it reminds me of one of mine, I don't think it's disgusting. Smell <laughs> is weird because you can smell a certain smell and suddenly think, 
oh, that was when I met such and such outdoors <laughs> and there was frangipani <laughs> and roses at the same time. And, and, and smell goes to a primeval part of your brain because every living creature down to a bacterium has a sense of smell to be able to pick up bad chemicals and good chemicals, avoid the bad ones, eat the good ones. So maybe there's a fluff that reminds you of a good memory. Someone else saying, if you can't love your own farts, how the hell are you going to love somebody else's farts? Can I get an amen up in here? Amen. Sean on the Central Coast. Sean, what's your question? Hi, doctors. Um, just uh, I played for the KGL and um, we just started our pre-season and it was an article brought up at training about um, professional athletes not being able to have sex the night before a game, like it's in their contract. Just wondering what? how that actually would have... Yeah, weird. We're, and we're just wondering how that would affect their performance in a game. What sport is this where they're not allowed to have sex before a game? And how many hours, days or weeks before the game are they not allowed to have sex? Um, I, I'd guess it's uh, across the board. Like it's a, di- a few different professional athletes like soccer, um, more European, American football and stuff. So, um, And I think it was like 24-hour period, I guess. I, I just I just saw it the day before a game. So, yeah. Wow. Um, The overall summary is that according to the various studies, there's no real measurable impact because I think that in some cases it's good for people and in some cases it's bad. And when you average it out over the people because you can't individually pick them out, you end up with an averaging to nothing. So firstly, there's hormonal differences with regard to testosterone and estrogen. And then once again, uh, estrogen and progesterone, of course, and they affect uh, people with XX and XY chromosomes differently and benefit to some and not others. In some cases, it gives you a better mental focus. Oh, I'm so horny, but instead I can't think about anything. I'm just going to think about the game instead and I'll concentrate entirely on the game. But in other cases, it helps people relax yeah. and then see the world better and then they can hone back in. So once again, you can see a variable preference there. Take and a load off. There's the quality yeah. of the um, sleep that you're getting. So if you get, as a result of six, a really good sleep, man, you're off to a good start the next day. But if you end up staying awake for perhaps longer than you should and not getting enough sleep, then you can end up with it uh, making your game worse. So it'll, for some people it's better, some people it's worse, but uh, averaged out there doesn't seem to be any difference. But it's not taking account of individual preferences. And if you've got a team of, say, 12 people, that's a small enough number for you to let them work it out for themselves or at least help them. Kate Newey, what's your question? Dr. Kate, welcome. Hey, um, I just have a question. If you're inside a moving train and you jump, um, you'll land in the same spot. But if you're on top of a moving train and you jump, you land in a different spot. Why is that? Ah, that comes to us from Newton with a remar- Isaac Newton with a remarkably simple and obvious law that was so obvious that nobody came up with it before him. And he got it as a result of the plague in 1666. So his law of motion is this, his first law of motion. He went to a farm, sat down, thought about things. Everything he'll keep on doing, whatever it's doing, until a force acts on it. That's Newton's first law of motion. So if it's moving, it'll stay moving unless a force acts on it. So in the case of the train... You're sitting yeah. in, inside the train and you're on, yeah. a, on a seat and there's zero, zero velocity. The train takes off and you are pushed back in the seat. Now, if while the train is taking off, while it's accelerating, 
while it's between zero and 50 kilometres an hour, I think, which is the top speed in Australia, or 400, which is in Europe. Okay, I'm just being mean. But if during that acceleration phase of the train, if you jump up in the air, you will not land from where you took off. You'll land a bit further back. But once the train has got to a constant speed, you're not being pushed in the seat. At that stage, you jump in the air... You stand up, you jump in the air, and you land exactly where you took off from. Now you do the illegal thing, which is very popular in action movies, of climbing <laughs> onto the top of the train. Now there's a force on you. That's the wind. Ah, which yeah. is not present down below inside the carriage. So you jump up, and then you're in the air, and then the wind acts upon you and takes you backward relative to the train. And so that oh, way, so-, so it's the force. So if you, sorry, go on. Yes, yeah, so the force of the wind is what stops you and moves the train yeah. going. So, so think about forces. Uh, and, and so in the case of a car rolling down the road and you switch off the engine, why does it slow down? The force of the wind resistance and the force of the friction. But in the okay. case of the earth going around the sun, there's virtually no friction. The amount of stuff in the vacuum of space that it runs into is microscopic compared to the mass of the Earth. So it'll keep on doing its 30 kilometres a second indefinitely. So just think about forces. It'll keep on doing whatever it's doing until a force acts on it. If it's stopped, it'll stay stopped. If it's moving, it'll keep moving. All right. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for the opportunity to give out Newton's first law of motion. I haven't done it for ages. And hopefully you're not in that situation, Kate. (laughs) No. <laughs> we've got oh. Ben from Sapphire Beach. Now, Ben, we've just had the festive season. What's your question? Yeah, look, this one's about, I guess, reducing your carbon footprint and looking after the planet. What, what's the best alternative? Is it to go and chop down a Christmas tree every December for the next, let's say I've got 40 years left of my life, or to go and buy a big plastic one from the shop and then um, bring it out every year and obviously it's been made in a factory and all that sort of stuff. So what's sort of the, the best option there? Uh, well, so firstly, with regard to carbon footprint, we are in a situation at the moment that fossil fuels are embedded in our society with regard to energy and many raw materials. We do not need them embedded in our society as in the early 1800s, we did not need slavery embedded in our society to make our clothes. So, uh, and then the raw materials, anything that you make out of fossil fuels, you can make out of natural materials, especially the ones we find in wood. And we've already managed to make wood both transparent and three times harder than steel. Pretty well anything that fossil fuels can do wood and other materials can do. But at the moment, we're in that transition stage with our embedded in our society and then you've got the variables. If it turns out that you're right next to a factory and they use fossil fuels to make a plastic tree and that plastic tree is robust and you can pass it on to your children and, you know, it lasts for years and years, in that case, because there's a carbon footprint, because that's the way our society is at the moment, but it doesn't have to be, you've got a relatively low-ish footprint because you're spreading it out over a long period. Uh, but on the other hand, if you just use it once and throw it away, that's very wasteful. Then with regard to the tree, if you've got a Christmas tree right near you and you use it and then you recycle it, that's got a very low carbon footprint, in fact, close to zero, because the carbon in the tree came from the atmosphere 
and will go back into the atmosphere. But if it's been taken hundreds of kilometres to you, that's a different situation. And then instead of uh, recycling it into the ground via, say, mulching it, Mm. you then chuck it in the waste and it goes into landfill... Um, you know, see how there are so many variables? Yeah, lots of variables. They could even start making fake trees out of real tree products. Recycled trees, fake trees. Yeah, well, you you can do that with wood. Wood has three main components, which is cellulose, which is about 50% of it. Um, And then there's the two other bits, hemicellulose and lignin. That's where you find the really weird chemicals found usually only in fossil fuels. Gotcha. Thanks, All Ben. Right, thank you. Lloyd, you've got 12 months to think about it. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you got time. Don't worry. <laughs> we got one last question for Science with Dr. Carl. Throwing it over to Tony in Newey. Tony, what do you want to know? When lightning strikes the ocean, does it penetrate the water surface? And if so, how far? Um, we've only got poor statistics on this, mainly from near the equator um, in the tropics, where it turns out that each year you get one and a half billion lightning bolts over the whole planet. Most of them are near the equator, few towards the poles. And what happens is you've got a bunch of fisher folk out there on the ocean and a storm's coming and they're keeping an eye on it and then suddenly a lightning bolt hits the ground, hits the ocean and then the uh, thing vanishes away. The whole storm goes away blown by the wind. They go over to where the lightning hit the ocean and they will see a circle of fish. Now, this is <laughs> this is reported in the newspaper, so it's not done scientifically uh, in that sense, but what you're finding is maybe five to ten metres across of dead fish and you're guessing maybe it penetrates half a metre or a metre or so. The trouble with putting lightning into water and see what it does to people is the ethics problems. They mm. might die. You know, the... <laughs> Test this the wussy society we live in, you know, <laughs> all woke and everything, <laughs> stopping you from that's doing good. real science. But that's kind of the ballpark figure. You get this sort of five to mm-hmm. ten metred circle of fish. Wow. And, well, I wondered about the fish and whether also if there'd be like an, an amount of superheated water in that one spot or how far out? I, I, I don't think it's the superheating. I think it's the electrical field. You'll see this happen yep. with cattle. Every now and then there's a report in the newspapers that there's been a big storm and lightning hit a tree and then uh, downwind of the tree, the cattle which were facing the tree, they all died with not a mark on their body. The latest wow. one was at Dorigo, about 50 of them. And the reason is that the lightning bolt spreads out from where it hit the ground and it's cl- there's a difference between the front and back legs. So a voltage appears across the front and back legs and a heart is in between. Oh. So if a fish is pointing towards the centre with a lightning bolt hit, there'll be a difference between its head and its tail, mm. which will go across its heart. But if it's side on... Then the whole body gets lifted up to, say, 300,000 volts per metre and then drops down again. And there's no difference in electrical field across the body of the fish because the width is very narrow. But with a cow, you can have a metre between the front and back legs and say you might have 250,000 volts per metre at the front legs and say maybe, say, 200,000. Volts per mm-hmm. meter, so you've got 50,000 volts over that one meter. And so just keep an eye out for it. You'll, you'll hear it coming up every couple of years or so. A whole bunch yeah. of kill, cattle dead with no um, uh, visible signs of you know, I- injury. That's mm. a bit 
gruesome to say keep an eye out for? I, I know, but, but you know. You know what I mean. Oh, I'm talking about it. It's a story, yeah. <laughs> it's a story. Yeah. You didn't make it happen. You didn't kill the poor cattle. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't me. Yeah, okay. it'd be um, it'd be ready cooked, I suppose, wouldn't it? No. Oh, the, well, the, <laughs> oh, they do put electricity into muscles to make them tender or not. I don't know. Okay. Mm. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Dr. Thanks Tony. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And there are so many more episodes for you to tuck into. Feel free to take a scroll through the podcast feed. We've got guest episodes. And we always appreciate when you let us know what you think, where you're listening from. We got this great review on Apple Podcasts from Unicorn saying, great job. Thank you. Five stars. Dr. Carl is amazing. My family love listening to his podcast. Definitely recommend from me. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill and Bernadette Nguyen, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.